0: Today is April 6, 2001, and my guest is the irrepressible Michael Munger of Duke University. Mike, welcome back to Econ Talk.
1: It's a pleasure to be on.
0: Uh, I know this is a relief to a lot of our listeners who keep bugging me. Where is Mike Munger? So they're, We're really glad to have you back.
1: Well, I'm glad to be back, and, and in fairness to Russ and, and the, the listeners, I've had a series of eye surgeries that have prevented this. It wasn't that Russ didn't try, so it's my fault.
0: Uh, It's not totally true. We did schedule one that we executed, and I uh, managed to destroy the file through uh, – that's happened about twice now in the 250 episodes. So,
1: um, Mike, you're too kind. I feel important. I don't think you actually do a rehearsal with most people.
0: Uh, That's true. That's true. Congratulations. So what we're going to talk about today is microfinance. Uh, which is a very broad term. So first let's talk about what is under that umbrella and the range of activities that fall under the name of microfinance and um, then we'll narrow it
1: down a little bit. Well, what I, in thinking about this, tried to start out with was what sort of things do we mean by finance? So if you think of... The kind of financial intermediaries that any advanced nation have, things that we just take for granted, are a savings account, a place that I can put savings and have it be safe and maybe earn a small amount of interest, checking, or some way of doing payment transfers so that um, I'm, I don't have to pay everything in cash, some way of getting credit or loans, and insurance, insurance of various kinds. And we take all of those things for granted, even to the extent of having a credit card that if it's a debit card, actually is all of those things. It's a way of paying, it's a way of getting credit, and it's a way of drawing off my savings account. Uh, it, it's pretty remarkable that we take that for granted. Now, that doesn't exist in a lot of nations. They don't have financial intermediaries. And that's a actually we think of as a market failure in the West. We call it disintermediation. Disintermediation is when the financial intermediaries are not there. And what bankers do in some ways is they pull together savings that a number of people have and are willing to give to the bank because maybe it's safer than burying it in the yard. And the banks take that money and then they loan it to someone else. And the difference between what they pay on savings and what they take in from the loans is how they make their profits. They also have a bunch of other fees. Well, these developing nations are completely disintermediated. They have some... Savings services, but the banks you can't really trust. Uh, Payment transfers are almost impossible. They have to pay in cash. And the uh, credit services are very attenuated. There may be Johnny down by the the light post in the center of town, but he he employs a bunch of thugs and charges 200% interest per year. So I don't have many choices when it comes to uh, financial intermediation. So what's meant by microfinance generally is a bewildering array of different ways of trying to provide financial intermediation. I tried to make a list. I I quit at, at 20. There's at least 20 different kinds of microfinance. Many of them are ways of giving loans. Some of them are ways of helping people have opportunities to save, and some of them are ways to make it faster to do payment transfers. Interestingly, the new kind of work on being able to pay with your cell phone may kind of jump us ahead of all of this. You may be able to have to save and to do payment transfers with cell phones in 10 years. But in the meantime, mostly what microfinance is, is a way of, of providing, and in some cases subsidizing by outside people, we're worried that poor people in developing nations don't have access. So we provide either subsidies or the services themselves to help them get savings, checking, and credit. So
0: this harkens back uh, somewhat to our earlier podcast on on middlemen, where something comes between the two transactors to make it easier. If it didn't make it easier, you, you just direct go directly to the person who'd lend you the money. So yeah. banks to to exist in the West, as you point out, in, in developed and rich countries, uh, banks in the West have to provide something of value. A higher rate of interest or a lower rate of interest, depending with your borrower or lender and security uh, and security uh, a big building with lots of guards and a big thick safe, which is safer than yours, of course works the opposite way uh, uh Willie Loman not Willie Loman Willie Sutton uh, <laughs> a slight brain cramp there um, a malaria uh, brain cramp uh Willie Sutton said he he robbed banks because that 's where the money is, obviously. Yeah. Um, Accumulating it all in one place makes it more attractive than any one individual's uh, backyard to, or mattress. Um, but the bottom line is, is that in in poor countries, uh, people don't have access to these services often, and the micro and microfinance is a reference to the fact that they don't. It's not a lot of money we're talking about, especially when it's when we're discussing a loan or a savings account. It's These are very small amounts of money by rich country standards,
1: right? Yeah, it's it's partly that it's a small amount of money, and it's partly that it's done at a very local level. There's no branches of some kind of central bank. It's all idiosyncratic. Typically. I, as a borrower, maybe I know someone or a group of us get together and form uh, a short-term kind of – it's not a corporation, but an organization, a, a cooperative organization where we agree to help each other.
0: And that help could be insurance, but it also could be in the case of of some of these microfinance institutions, uh, a loan gets made only if you have a group that has these activities that make it more likely that you'll pay back.
1: Um, and some, of the I, I was trying to think what was the closest thing that I could think of like this. And frankly, it's Alcoholics Anonymous.
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: It's like an AA meeting, so. What it means to me is there's actually a simple solution, and older alcoholics, if you ask them, will say, well, what's the solution? And the answer is don't drink. Yeah, seems well, somewhat easy. that's not that easy. Yeah. And so you have meetings, and you encourage each other, and you have people that you can call if you're having trouble, and you have a set of steps that you go through.
0: And you have now, public shame and embarrassment to help restrain you from your own short-run interests that might conflict with your long-run interests.
1: Well, the big problem, and what's interesting about this, there's a, a, a guy at George Mason that you may know. I think his name is like Tyrone Cohen. Uh,
0: could you be referring to Tyler Cowan? Oh, Tyler Yeah. so you know him. Yeah, No, He's a colleague of mine. I think yeah. he's got a blog. Yeah. Marching um, Revolution for those of One of the things
1: that makes me mad about Tyler is that almost everything that I think of that's pretty cool, he thought of and already published five years ago. Yeah. So he had an article guy. with uh, Carol Boudreaux in uh, Wilson Quarterly in 2008, yeah. where he actually kind of went against the tide. At that time, it was very important for everyone to say uh, how wonderful microfinance was. And the, Tyler Cowan and uh, Carol Boudreau said two things. First, you're mistaken. This is not that wonderful. Its effects are pretty small. And second, the most important effect is not loans, it's savings. You should think of microcredit organizations really as a way of helping people save when otherwise they couldn't. And so, now, three years later, that's actually the conventional wisdom.
0: So let's let's start with the the conventional wisdom that they were attacking. So this, the um, the there was a lot of of hoopla and excitement about microfinance as a solution to poverty. And, and let me let me give you the version that I. Absorbed. I'm not a an expert on it, but the part that sort of drifts through the through the um, atmosphere goes something like this: uh, Poor people are credit constrained. They don't have access to capital. Hernando de Soto has argued that the resources that they have, they don't have title to them often, like their house, such as their house, so they can't use them as collateral. So as a result, they have to live in the moment. And if we could only get them access, poor people access to capital. They could borrow and invest in the things that they could that they could use that would allow them to escape poverty. They could buy small amounts of equipment to start a small business. They could uh, get advanced access to, to credit that would allow them to make the payments they need to start that small business. So one claim, which has a certain appeal, is that the only thing holding back the poor people of the world is the fact that they can't borrow. And if we could only give them access to credit, which means if we could only give them some some collateral that they could that they could use with some kind of institution, they could escape and as a result there there were a lot of uh, organizations established to make these loans uh, to poor people so they could they could s- buy a small amount of of equipment which might be as something as as small as a you know a a sewing machine, which actually would be a pretty big investment, but, but small pieces of equipment, a cart, things that would allow people to carry things, um, a bicycle, a cell phone, that these would be the ways that poor people would escape poverty. So Maybe that, a soldering iron. A soldering iron. So these – the, that was the hope that a very tiny step could have a very big payoff in, uh, in getting rid of poverty. And you're suggesting that that is not the case.
1: It just turns out that it's not the case. There's no evidence that it has any effect on levels of poverty, either of communities or individuals. It doesn't help.
0: Which is not to deny that entrepreneurship and starting businesses is good for the poor if they can do it and do it productively. And So it either suggests that those things are happening anyway or their impact would not be very large.
1: And the the way that people have done this, people have done a lot of empirical studies – They've done controlled studies where they gave some people in the community access to grants for micro, what essentially was microcredit and others they did not, and then compared them after two years. And clearly there was in some ways, the if you give people money, it helps a little bit. They can buy stuff. But the idea that they would invest and start up this chain that would then allow them to become entrepreneurs is just mistaken. So there's, there's quite a bit of controlled experiments in Africa and India that say that's not actually what's happening. But on the other side, there is an optimism. It turns out that although it, the, the, the story of we loan it to the people and they become successful and they lift themselves and maybe some of the people around them out of poverty, that turns out not to be true. But it, it is there it is actually a very important positive effect that microfinance and microcredit has and that is it helps people to save. The problem is not that they're credit constrained. The problem is they're savings constrained.
0: So explain what you mean by that.
1: Tyler Cowan actually comes up with an estimate for some people in central Mexico about what's the implicit rate of return on savings. And he gets negative 75%. That is, if I save a dollar, <laughs> then it's understood that I have that in the form of cash. People will expect me to pay more for village festivals and rituals. They'll come to borrow it, not pay it back. And I'll be obliged to pay because these are familiar relationships. Maybe um, I've, if I'm a woman and I've saved it, my husband finds some of it and drinks it up. So in order to save any large amount of money, I have to save almost four times that much because the rate of return on saving is actually negative. There was a study in India that said um, microfinance savings groups the rate of saving that I'm actually acting on is has about a negative 30% rate of return. That is, I'd be better off saving $100 and burning 30 rather than entering into one of these microfinance groups. So far from having a positive rate of return, they actually have a negative rate of return. The thing is that without this intervention, it would be even worse. It might be minus 80%. So we're allowing people to save at a less – the price is less. In other words, we're reducing the price of saving. We're making it possible. And that just – that seems incredible, literally incredible, unbelievable to those of us that are used to thinking, well, you just save. It turns out that's not true. And there's a number of anthropological studies that explain why that's so difficult.
0: Well, Tyler's reference to uh, you know, Mexican village or a certain – Implicit taxes imposed, social what you might call social costs of being part of the community. Bit, I'm skeptical of that. It's, it, it's hard to understand why such a dysfunctional practice, which mires a, a group of people in poverty, would persist. Those cultural norms, they sound very destructive. Obviously, there's a possibility they could produce something else that was of so, such great value that they could persist. But i I'm, I want to step back a bit because I'm a little confused. The the normal argument, and this is borne out also by evidence. And of course, one of the problems with this whole field is that, you know, when we talk about evidence, I'm putting it in scare quotes. It often means, uh, oh, I'm talking about this kind of microfinance or this kind of poor community or this kind of village. So it, it's a little bit uh, dangerous to generalize. But w- what some people have claimed is that there are very high positive rates of return. That that people take out these loans and pay a very high rate of they take, pay a very high rate of interest, and it's still worth it, not just because it's, it's to prevent the destruction and kind of wastefulness that you're talking about, but because there is a lot that can be done, and there's just high transactions costs uh, to, to, to serve that market. And so not much of it does get done, and when it does get done, it gets done at high, at high costs.
1: I think the answer is two parts. One is if you think of this as a lottery – and it really makes a difference that one in 10 of the people who take out one of these loans actually does escape to the middle class, then that is a good thing. It's, it's not very likely, but it is possible that some people actually create a small business. The problem is it's not one in 10. It's more like one in a 100. So we are getting closer to lottery odds, and it has no effect on communities or nations. So there's not a way out of poverty. One of the things that I think, when you say step back, I think you're right. Why is poverty so persistent? It doesn't make any sense. If all this were, were credit constrained, then all, all that would be necessary is someone say, ah, I see the problem. I'll be able to save money because it's easy. And I'll be able to invest at a 20 or 30% rate of return because we're credit constrained. There's this thing that will solve our problem, and that's called saving. So if it were as easy as providing credit, somebody would do it and make profits in just the way that you suge- suggest. And the, That's proof that it's not credit constraint. Well,
0: some people claim that, that that is happening. I just want to mention this because I think it's important. that We may not dwell on it, but I think it's important. There are people who make a living lending money to poor people at very high rates of interest. Uh, that happens in the United States uh, with check cashing services and and um, and money stores of various kinds. Uh, and it happens in poor countries with with banks that charge high rates of interest over short periods of time to people who who, can, who borrow. And there's a backlash against that uh, from all kinds of sources. Some of it well intentioned, some of it self interested. From others who who want access to those to those folks for different reasons. But the, the well intentioned version of it is it's wrong to exploit poor people and charge them high rates of interest. Therefore, the expansion of credit to poor people around the world should be a charitable activity it should be done by nonprofits it shouldn't be done by financial intermediaries who are who are motivated by profit it should be done as a charitable activity and I think that that is a very powerful and often held argument that is used in in the policy debate on this.
1: Yes yeah, sure no, I, I don't disagree with that at all and it is interesting that it depends what you're thinking of as a unit of analysis. There are, there have been, since time immemorial, people in every society that make money by lending money, and there's a certain set of norms that have been built up. They charge very high rates of interest. It's implausible that you could earn enough to be able to pay somebody back 100% per year or 200% per year, that, that investment opportunities are being passed up that have a return of 200% per year, which is what you would have to do to pay back the local money lender. Well, what microfinance tries to do let's actually talk about the structure of one of these microfinance arrangements okay there there are many different ones but the most common and the one that's used by grameen bank and a lot of the ones that are the darlings of uh the the media and hollywood work something like this there's a group of us maybe a circle seven or eight and we decide that this is your month to get a loan and so we'll give you forty dollars you make an immediate payment back to us of $4, 10% of the total. And every week for the next nine weeks, 10 weeks, you pay back another $4. And at the end of the time, you've paid back $44. The, the, the original $40 plus 4% interest. If you add that up over plus the $4 course, dollars right? of interest. $4 of interest, right. Which is something like 20 or 24%. Now...
0: That seems like a pretty expensive way to get access to $40 right now.
1: That's, and, but it's, yeah. it's way better than I could get it from a money lender. That's, that's the model. That's what Grameen Bank actually does. And then the next person takes it. And since it's, there's maybe six or seven of us, I, I get to do two of this a year. Um, in some cases, we may have an arrangement where I get to do it every month. Now, that's a pretty small amount of money. And I have to start paying it back right away. So it's not that I can invest and wait. Now, there are many people, not a high proportion, but many numerically, that actually work on something more, much more like a commercial loan, where I'll borrow $200 and agree to pay it back in a year after I have earned something according to the business plan. Maybe it's just I bought a soldering iron, I have a tin roof shack, and I'm going to build uh, motherboards. I'm going to assemble inexpensive motherboards with this soldering iron because I'm good at that sort of small work, um, those often work and pay a high rate of return. So if you screen for those, those guys can make 15 or 20 percent per year after repaying the loan. So there, there's a, there's numerically a fair number of those, if they can just get access to some kind of credit and initial capital, they, and that's, that's profitable commercially. Commercial banks make those kinds of loans in India and Africa. So that's not really what I'm talking about when I talk about microfinance. So I'm, we're sort of hiving off the part that we agree private enterprise can probably solve, maybe with a little bit of an initial push, maybe with some help on enforcing laws and contracts. There's some things about the culture that make it difficult, but at least in principle it's possible because there's money on the table there. It makes no sense to leave money on the table.
0: So the money on the table being the opportunity that this person is going to be able to – Take advantage of once they have the soldering iron. The, the yeah, productivity—it's
1: no, it's just imperfect, imperfect capital markets. I can borrow against my future earnings and more than pay them back. That transaction should be observed in a market,
0: and it uh, and it is. You're and just, it is most, although a slightly higher rate than you might expect in a in a more developed economy. But it's but it but it happens.
1: Yes, it, it happens, and it happens. It happens more and more. And some of the attention that was at first given to microfinance l- lending—it turns out that borrowing $40, owing all of it back within 10 weeks and paying it back $4 a week is not a very good way to do that. So those guys are not now using microfinance. They're, they're moving to much more like a traditional commercial banking model where I borrow 200 and I pay it back at the end of the year plus interest.
0: So let's go back then to the circle. So there's seven, of eight, seven or eight of us. Uh, my understanding is they're typically women.
1: Often often they're women. They they don't have to be. One of the particular goals of Grameen Bank was to make sure that women got loans because it was particularly difficult for them to get loans. So he thought they were the most underserved population.
0: He is Muhammad Yunus who got a Nobel Prize.
1: So Mr. Yunus thought they were the most underserved population, and he thought it would have the biggest impact on the family – because his claim was that women would spend a higher proportion of what of earnings they got on food and education. Could be where true. men might or might not.
0: Yeah, could be true.
1: Yeah, I I it's a, it's at least worth a bet and it certainly is objectively true that women had a hard time getting these loans.
0: So what is what have we now learned about this kind of system where it's a strange system. I get 40 bucks, but right away I'm I'm paying starting to pay it back and At the end of the story, I've paid out a lot in interest overall, percentage terms. The question is, what am I doing with the money? What's the thrill here? What's the benefit? Why do I want to be the next person this month? Why why do I want it to be my turn?
1: The answer is it turns out absolutely clear, and that it's saving. So if I want something, I save up and then buy it. This system, that's impossible. You can't save. That either a lack of self discipline of all sorts of kinds. I don't mean for the individual; it just be the problems with the family, and the the documentation of this was persuasive that they're just having a terrible time saving.
0: Well, so let me let's just set this up because it it seems puzzling. I, I can it seems easy. It's easy to save in ten weeks if I just put four dollars aside. I'll have forty bucks. And I won't have paid that extra $4, which is a lot of money if you're yeah. poor. It's a huge amount of money. Yeah. So I just have to wait 10 weeks. That's not yeah. so bad. And, and, and that's what you should do. But and there's something you, that stops me from doing that.
1: If you could do that, you wouldn't see microfinance. That's the client. It it's not actually loans. It's savings.
0: So explain how, why that's true again.
1: Um, well, people have a lot of trouble saving. and And the part of the reason was the reasons that that tyler gave that there were when everyone's very poor if it's known that i have a small amount or if it's if my husband finds out that i have a small amount it's kind of free money i don't have any obligation for it so if i'm saving up for something they say oh well you can wait if however i have an obligation
0: all right that's wh- the next question why would i pay back the four bucks then how do i do that
1: well i i pay back the four e- either way we're assuming i get four bucks a week right I pay it back because I have this obligation to my friend. It's like AA. Right. I, I work harder to do it. So the, the, the good part about microfinance was that it created a culturally appropriate mechanism for ensuring repayment. So signing a contract wouldn't have done anything. Otherwise, there'd be commercial loans. But what does matter is that these other people in my village, people that I depend on that I've known for a long time, and with whom I would lose face because of shunning and lack of social status if, it, if it's known that I'm a deadbeat. Plus, I lose access to, I get kicked out of the circle. So it means I don't get to participate anymore. So there's both monetary and non-monetary reasons why it works. So what people call this now is saving down. Instead of saving up, I'm saving down. I get hmm. the $40, and I spend it on food, or on education, on clothing, I bump up the level of consumption and welfare of my family. And then I pay it off. And then, interestingly, I do it again. Um, For a lot of these circles, they actually have outside money coming in from uh, a charitable organization or a nonprofit. Everybody in the circle may borrow something every month and repay it. So it's just saving down. All they're doing is reversing what you and I think of as the normal pattern of things. You save up and then you spend. Well, they spend and then they save down. But having that obligation and having that mutual support network that makes it okay for me to say no to my husband or no to my neighbor. I have to have this $4 so that I can pay it off. It, this is third best. This is not first or second best as a way of saving. So what's interesting is that as people have come to realize this, they've actually stopped emphasizing the microfinance part of it and started working towards first best uh, institutions that actually would facilitate savings directly. And so the the Gates Foundation, for example, took $100 million that they had already pledged to microfinance and, and instead used it to subsidize the creation of local banks that would make saving easier. Banks that will – that are actually secure, that are not fraudulent, and where I can put the savings beyond the reach of – having it in my house means it may be stolen. It may be uh, – my neighbors come over and make me feel bad about it. It's possible now for me to keep it secret.
0: So the idea here would be something like um, uh, direct deposit. Uh, there's, do- automatic withdrawal from it
1: well but you're, you're making it too complicated it's just what you said before I have four dollars and I take it down to the bank every week that's the best that's it's, the best it, it, yeah. it's amazing that that's not possible then I well, could
0: actually have access to forty three dollars yeah. instead of 30
1: 30- and and that's why six. your skepticism is well founded it just turns out that they didn't have any other institution what's hard for us to get our minds around. Is that there was no other way to save, and so they used this third best sort of uh, of institution because it was available
0: so I assume there's a there's a also a very important role here of insurance that's taking place because of variability of income right poor people in in the parts of the world we're talking about are not an annual twelve month salary they're doing odd jobs here and there, bringing in a certain amount of money and some. Times they don't bring in any money, and they need that forty dollars to pay for food that month, yep. that week, right?
1: So it, it, I think it's partly insurance, and the, the circle there plays two roles. One, I get a chance for the forty dollars, but if I miss a payment, they'll say, "Okay, uh, we'll get you next time. We'll make up for it." So there's 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 pooling both over time where I'm smoothing my income. I get this forty dollars, and some people emphasize this smoothing part of it. There's also a cross-sectional insurance though where the six or seven people in our group, I may be able to loan you $4 because you loaned me $4 seven months ago and there's, a, there's a, a, an explicit kind of reciprocity where the, it's the entire group that's responsible for the loan, not any individual. So I, I think there's two aspects to the insurance of it and those are really important. When you have nothing, Having the the prospect of that $40 makes a big difference. You can pay off some things, uh, buy new shoes, buy, buy the medicine that your daughter needs.
0: And you don't – again, the punchline but from before is that you don't have a rainy day fund that you've built up for those things in the past because nope. money just disappears.
1: No, and it's, it, 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 it turns out that it just disappears for reasons that are complicated. and and differ by different cultures. But remember, we're selecting on those cultures where this was very difficult. And so a number of, one of the most interesting studies, I think, in terms of the kind of behavior that they were looking for, was uh, by a fellow from the the World Bank named Jonathan Morduch, M-O-R-D-U-C-H. And they wanted to know why it was that people behaved in this odd way.
0: And Odd so, way being that they took loans out that cost them a lot of money and that they didn't get a lot of return from directly.
1: It's, well, the more the paradox that you pointed out, they want to save and yet they don't. And yet they can save enough to pay back these loans. How can that be right? So they wanted to try to explain that, but they were working from the premise that if it was just credit-constrained – People would save enough to make the loans, and then you would see the normal sort of path. Their conjecture was that they weren't credit-constrained, they were saving-constrained. But how could that be? So what they did was they asked them a pretty innocuous question, the sort of thing that reminds me what my, my Duke colleague here, Dan Ariely, does to try to reveal paradoxes. But they weren't looking for a paradox, they were looking for an explanation. What they did was they would give a survey and said, which of the following two things would you want? 250 rupees, which I think is like a few dollars, 250 rupees tomorrow, or 280 rupees three months from now. Which of those do you want? And if you say 250 rupees tomorrow, then you're pretty constrained. You're pretty um, interested, concerned with... um, the present over the future. Because you're, willing, you're to forego,
0: willing to forego, to that nice chunk of change you'd get extra.
1: So then they asked 250 or 290, 250 or 300. They, 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 what the, the question was: At what point would you switch over and say, "Yes, that's enough. That's enough I'll to wait. compensate me. Wait. I want the money. I want the interest. The money plus the interest, not just the immediate gratification." And then they said, "All right, how about this? Which would you rather have 12 months from now?" 250, to 250 rupees or 280 rupees. And then 250, 290, and they kept going up until they switched again. And what they were looking for was what appear to be contradictions. In both cases, I'm asking you 250 versus 280, and the difference is three months. So your discount rate should be constant. There's nothing that would say your discount rate should vary over time. Your discount rate is how you value the present over the future. So it, all of us value the present over the future. The question is, by how much? Correct. Well, it turns out that there are three categories of people. Then potentially there's four, but there's nobody in the fourth category. One of the categories is the one who says, I want the two fifty both times. That's perfectly consistent. It means they have a very high discount rate. They discount the future. They want the money now. Fair enough.
0: Meaning two fifty versus two eighty in six months three months or six? Three months, I think.
1: Well I mean, let, two- me, let me say it again because yeah. it is complicated. The the first time I say two fifty versus two eighty. The two fifty is tomorrow and the two eighty is three months from now. And I say two fifty. And then I say all right, a year from now 250 or 15 months from now 280 and I say 250 again. So in both cases well, That is
0: complicated. So so yeah, a year from now 250, a year from now 15 months, 3 months extra weight, 280, which would you rather have? It's 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 the same um, uh, appreciation of the funds over the same period of time. It's just that the whole thing is shifted by a year.
1: Yep. Yeah, and so the the question is the the, the the year from now versus fifteen months from now is probably a better measure of my actual sense of the future, whereas the prospect of getting it tomorrow may if I'm desperate may just I I I, won't, I have to have it. So uh, the comparing a year to fifteen months from now is the a more realistic and useful comparison. It's just that it's not tainted by my immediate need. My for urgency. Money.
0: Okay. So so some people say in both cases I want two fifty now.
1: Yep, and th- those that's perfectly sensible. That means that um, you value uh, the present more than the future, and fair enough. And there's also quite a few people who take the 280 three months from now or 15 months from now. So in both cases, they would rather wait and get, and get the extra interest.
0: Okay.
1: Well, the first type of person is the sort of person that might benefit from borrowing uh, commercial loans. I get the money now, maybe I can repay it back because I have immediate needs for it. Right. The second poor sort of person is the sort of person that might benefit from being able to deposit money to make commercial loans, because they're the sort of person that would rather get the interest. Right. And so, in fact, banks are intermediaries between the first type of person and the second type of person. Right. They're bringing the absence, them together. The absence of banks means that there is money being left on the table because... Some people want to to loan money, and some people would like to borrow it. And we're seeing that being filled, that that gap being filled by small-scale commercial enterprises already of the sort that you talked about. There are people who make money, and there's more and more of them, who are able to act as intermediaries and say, all right, you have a low discount rate. We'll take your deposit. We'll find somebody with a high discount rate, loan the money to them, and we'll all be better off. The interesting thing is all three of those people are better off. The middleman's better off, the person that wants to make the loan is better off, and the borrower is better off. And, you know, there's some amount that's not repaid. But if this were the entire story, there'd be no place for microfinance. Microfinance uniquely occupies the third niche. And that's someone who, when I say today versus three months from now, takes the today, takes the smaller amount. But if I say 250 in a year, or 280 in 15 months, they take the 280 in 15 months. So given a chance, they would rather wait. They would rather save. But they're desperate because right now they have no mechanism for saving. And so what was interesting was the, um, the researchers, Jonathan Morduck and his colleagues, went back and looked at the people who were successful in these microfinance circles. And an extremely disproportionate number of them were of that third type, people who had need for money immediately but who wanted to save in the sense that they valued the future more than the present. The fourth type of person would be someone who was the opposite, (laughs) someone who wanted to save now but spend in the future, and there there basically aren't any of those people.
0: So when you heard these kind of studies – my questions always one question. You, I, I usually have a few questions, but one of the questions you would ask, of course, is that you know we just described this over the over a phone line. It's it's a little complicated. Yep. Not only is it a little complicated, it's a kind of situation I've never confronted anything quite like. So you often wonder whether the responses are heartfelt versus just tossed off as a way to get the surveyor to leave me alone, right? Um, even a Duke undergrad could be perplexed by that choice.
1: Well, I'm 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 simplifying it in a way that makes it sound more complicated, if that's possible. <laughs> because the, the the actual way that they asked the questions was a lot more detailed. And what what I asked you was, would you whether two fifty or two fifty one, two fifty or two fifty two, and the point at which you chose was the point where we locked it in. So it's actually more continuous than that. Um, Thomas Schelling, in his book, 1984 book, uh, Choice and Consequence, talked about the conflict between the patient future self and the impatient present self. And there's actually been quite a bit of research that was, has been done on these surveys that you get pretty consistent findings. What I think makes this more credible is that if you were right, and it, it, it's, a, it's a plausible conjecture that we're, we're inferring too much from this survey, if you also ask questions, though, about do you borrow money, do you loan money, do you participate in um, microfinance of the Grameen Bank sort, it classifies type 1, type 2, and type 3 people with remarkable accuracy. So yeah, that's just fun. knowing how they answer this survey also allows you to predict um, their their finance behavior, do they borrow money for small businesses, do they loan money, or do they participate in microfinance? And if their answers were random, it would be random. Right.
0: So again, the the interesting question here is that if this phenomenon is, is widespread of this type three person or the person who is willing to forego significant sums of money for the opportunity to postpone consumption, uh, excuse me, for the opportunity to get consumption today but can't manage to do it yeah. uh, by saving – it it really says that the research question then is is to look at the cultural as an outsider again not as a policymaker uh the the issue would be what's driving what's constraining people's ability to save is it family issues is it these cultural norms or is it you know something else
1: and what I thought what was interesting about it was that if you look for the premise of why Grameen Bank exists, a lot of that was that women have a really hard time getting access to money. And if you look at the reasons, it's the answers to the question that you just posed. All of the things that would explain why it's hard for women to borrow money also explain why it's hard for them to save. Which are? Well, uh, family, community. The norm that if you have some money and it 's not specific the problem with saving is it's i 'm thinking about spending this in the future, and maybe I have something I want to spend it on, but it 's not a specific obligation, but my obligations to my husband, my obligation to my community are damaging, and you said before you thought that that maybe you would propose a kind of institutional evolution test where we would expect these cultural institutions over time to disappear. Well, maybe, but it takes a long time. I'm a a Doug North student, and one of the things I thought that was most interesting about North is there's no reason to assume institutions are efficient. Organizations are efficient, but institutions can be highly inefficient, even pathological. And so, again, we're selecting on those societies that in spite of all the economic opportunity in the world, have failed to grow and prosper. It's not most, but it, it turns out to be a lot of people. So they have these cultural and personal norms that act against, that mitigate against, the ability of people to move out of poverty, and that's why poverty is so persistent. Well, that... if, all, if all it took was Natalie Portman, Natalie Portman actually said, now that we have microfinance, all it takes is a mouse click, and we can eradicate poverty.
0: uh wh- if only it were so, yeah. Um, of course, it does raise the question I, I, th- I mentioned earlier, which is: uh, you're presuming that that the only goal here is to, is to get out of poverty. There, there could be other benefits from these norms that are not obvious to us who do not live
1: there. Well, there the, one of the big norms is insurance. That it's understood that the community takes care of people who need. Uh, have this obligation to take care of people who are in need but that's part of the reason that it's so hard to save if i have something and i have no specific obligation uh, that is i'm just trying to save now i have in mind something i want to buy but i have money and you don't i'm obliged to provide it and what that means is that it's all the insurance benefits that we've been talking about so it, it's it's both a benefit and a curse In the absence of other kinds of access to savings, rainy day funds, or actual insurance, we have to insure each other. And there's this deeply felt obligation in such societies for people in your village or people in your family to share. I don't actually have property rights to my own savings. Uh, I I don't mean formally. I mean informally. Yeah.
0: It reminds me of um, what we might think of as private rent-seeking. So you win the lottery – yeah, and now you have a lot of friends. That's perfect. You have a lot of a lot of cousins that you didn't know about. Um, suddenly, you're so happy to see you.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so, you know, this would explain, I guess, one argument, perhaps that's analogous. I'll make it and let you comment on it. Is you know, the athlete who signs the multi-million dollar bonus, knowing that his career is not going to be infinite, he's probably going to have anywhere from one to ten good years. Ten would be very unlikely. He might have this one big payday, and, and often no success beyond it, particularly in basketball where people are now signing these contracts after one year of college um, and very uncertain as to what their real prospects are. But you have a lot of money, and you'd think you'd be set for life because yeah. you're going to make – your lifetime income stream is dramatically higher yeah. than the people you grew up with.
1: And yet um, a lot of them end up bankrupt. How broke. could they be so stupid? Right. That's the question. Well, they're not. Nope. They actually just, and in some cases, they come from strata of society, socioeconomic strata of society, that are poverty is pretty common, and there are that that sort of obligation. You have to keep it real. You have you buy to buy your mom a house,
0: home. you buy your your dad a car, you buy your friend from high school a car. You. Yeah, but and that's a lot of fun. I don't want to. By the way, I don't want to minimize that as just a tax people, on you.
1: And the, the impulse, <laughs> the impulse is perfectly praiseworthy, but the the the, the, the if your analogy, I think, is a good one, certainly, if I became wealthy, it would be understood in India that I would be obliged to take care of my family. Yeah. But even at the margin, even if I have some savings, it means that I've been successful at something. And yes, they're willing to credit me; they'd be grateful when I help. But it would be—I would be acting wrongly if I deny them because I say I want to buy my daughter a dress or I want to—I want to send my daughter to school. So Tyler Cowen, again, I I wish I liked him. (laughs) Tyler Cowen, again, gives an explanation that it sort of captures it. Now, it's oversimplified. But suppose I get, I'm I'm, I'm the, this is my week for the microfinance circle, and I get $40. Well, I go buy a cow. It's hard for my neighbor to come and get part of the cow.
0: Yeah, it's hard to take 10% of the cow.
1: So maybe they want some milk, but now I have some wealth that's indivisible. And this is a way – and I pay it back $4 at a time. But it would be hard for me to save up because suppose I have $24 I've been saving for six weeks. Somebody says, well, do you have any money? No, I, I say. And then after a while, I go and buy a cow. You liar. You had money. How can you treat me that way?
0: Yeah. There's a lot of P.G. Woodhouse short stories, by the way, built on this <laughs> the premise of um, you know, Uckridge or somebody trying to get a fiver out of somebody who uh, – Pretends not to have it, but uh, I love the expression. It's, it's it's the exact opposite social strata. It's the uh, it's the British upper class. The, the expression that P G. Woodhouse always uses is to get in between his ribs. I guess you know that that means to get alone to get five bu- five pounds off him. Yeah. and I guess that's uh, an expression of, of intimacy, right? Yeah. Uh, if you can get between somebody's ribs, you're pretty close to them. Yeah. Um, and you can, you're getting at it the – it's also the equivalent of the storing it in your mattress or the um, – that's where you'd like to keep it at least. Uh-huh. Um, well,
1: partly because it's safe but partly because it's disguised.
0: Yeah, that's that too. Yeah, that too.
1: So uh, I, I actually think your analogy is one I haven't thought of and it's right. It's just a lottery but on a smaller scale. Meaning? Um, the, your, your,
0: oh, oh the, the winner of the lottery. The winner yeah. of the lottery Right, spare money makes generates rent seeking.
1: Yes, and I'm you're, you're obliged even more so in poor societies to share it because they probably have helped you in the past.
0: Yeah. Well, well you know this view yeah. that that it's not a, a a magic cure for poverty that microfinance is not a magic cure. I, I want to push back against that just a little because I do think some of the um, in particularly places where property rights are ill-defined, collaterals non-existent, I think there is some entrepreneurial activity generated by microfinance. And the fact that it's not measurable at the aggregate level is um, – may not be the best test. Um,
1: well, right. It know. isn't the best test and that's why they did random assignments of – people in villages in india some were in the program and some not and they looked at them after two years those specific people to test just that question and the, the finding that there was zero difference at least zero significant difference i think is the most persuasive argument
0: yeah that's distressing um i just i, I think the reason i mention it is i think there is uh, william Easterly's written about this uh uh, I think very eloquently that there there is a temptation to look for a giant, massive program to lift people out of a world where they're earning two a buck fifty a day to a world where they're earning sixty dollars a day, and um, those aren't lying around. Yeah. And so modest, and I mean super modest. Yeah. Tiny improvements. Uh, are therefore ignored, that might be able to help people. And I think we have to be careful.
1: To be fair, microfinance is that. It probably does improve the quality of life of of people in ways that are very hard to measure. So the, the, the study that I was talking about that had random assignment says, are women more credit constrained? Experimental evidence on gender and microenterprise return. And they did random assignment. Um, what they found was that people who got this, instead of investing it, spent it on a little bit of education, some medicine, maybe a cow. Um, there was no measurable difference in the rate of return that they were earning, but there was almost certainly a significant difference in the quality of life. And this was a very small amount, amount of money. It was a total of maybe two or $300 per family. If we could find a way to make it cheaper to save, that was the, the, the promise of, of microfinance was the people who were selecting being included in microfinance is people who actually wanted to save but were in such an institutionally spartan environment that they couldn't manage to do it. That should be something that we can fix. I actually think that's hopeful. So I, I, I take your point. I do think, and in fact, the, the title of, uh, of Boudreau and Cowan's article was The Micro Magic of Micro Credit. And it's somewhat ironic because it's not the magic bullet that some people believe in. But their conclusion, and I think it's right, there's much more promise that we've been, than we have been giving credit to, if, if you'll forgive me, for saving. <laughs> if, if we can just find a way to help people save, since they want to, then that's an easy problem to fix, actually.
0: Well, I'm not so sure. Why, why is that easy?
1: We need banks. All, all we need is banks.
0: All right, but I'm on my way to the bank with my four dollars, and and uh, there's um, you know there's Uckridge trying to get between my ribs yeah. to take it, three it, it's of only it from
1: dollars, and I I may be able to hide it.
0: I think that's the key, right? Yeah. The key is the well, I, you know, the, the part of this is just a little bit disturbing. It's my. Um, Chicago, University of Chicago Sensibilities. It's a little strange that in, in this story, the ideal bank would be open uh, only for a minute or two. And, and once you, you deposited the money, you couldn't get it back for a long time, right? You wouldn't be able to withdraw it easily. Right, the higher the cost, the better. Because when because when the neighbor how... comes and says, "I need to, I need to buy a, a drink," you say, "Well, I don't have any money." But didn't I see you go to the bank? Yeah, I did. Well, then let's go to the bank. Go get a couple. I don't need all of your thirty-six dollars you've saved so far. Just need seven. Yep. And, and you the, say, will... "Well, the bank's closed. It's Tuesday." Right. Mm-hmm. So in this story, you know, they want the bank closed most of the time with all kinds of draconian anti-consumer uh, regulations that make it hard to get the money out. Right. It's a little bit yeah. disturbing.
1: It is disturbing. It's because you Chicago people believe institutions are efficient, or that there's a they tendency- don't
0: slander me, monger. <laughs> <There's, laughs> don't call me one of those Chicago people.
1: You believe that was you my believe roots. That there's a tendency to, for institutions to evolve towards more efficiency. Yeah,
0: I do. I do. I do feel that, and I think of that not just as I'm going to just defend myself. Not only as a Chicago thing, but a Hayekian thing. Right? Hayek was very. Um, argued often that that institutions evolved over time to, to produce outcomes that were no one's intention. And uh, the fact that, that this is so uh, awful in the story that we're telling makes me wonder, is there some benefit that's out there that we're not seeing? Is it really like this all the time? So, I'm,
1: I'm On that score, I prefer Hume to Hayek. There's a bunch of different ways of arranging societies. And once you have conventions, we accept them and we don't argue with them. Now, it's going to turn out that some are better than others. But what's lacking in institutional evolution is the mergers and acquisitions that we see in economics or the nature red in tooth and claw that we see in biology. There's no natural selection process. There is mutation. There's all sorts of ways that we get different institutional forms. But there aren't the same pressures that mean that better institutions are going to take over from worse institutions, except in the very long run. Now, yep. I, I do think we've moved much more towards market societies, and it happens that I believe that those are, that's the most efficient and best institution for people who are poor because it creates both wealth and consumer sovereignty. So I think we are moving in that direction, but it's very sticky.
0: I'll accept that. Um, so do you know anything about what's going on with efforts to create these banks uh, that might make it easier for people to save?
1: Um, there, A number of them have been built. Some of them have failed. It turns out that since the rate of return is negative on saving, that people will actually save if you offer a zero rate of return. So that's a positive. I do think there's some of the problem where still where – I'm going to the bank, and somebody sees me and says, maybe they've heard that I go to the bank a lot. Uh, are you saving money? Do you have any? Rather than, I'm, an, I'm obliged to pay this back. So savings, saving down may still be a better answer. I owe this money. I have to pay it. No, we can't go drinking. Rather than, no, I'm going to go put it in the bank. And the loans from these banks, the the, the rate of interest that they have to pay, even though they're paying zero on deposits, the rate of interest that they have to charge because of the, the chances of default or non payment or at least missing payments are pretty high. And so it, it's it's difficult to be able to know who can make the to the extent they're investing in commercial loans. There's just not enough profitable investment. And the big problem is this is it's a circular argument I realize, but the reason that loans are not profitable is there's not enough saving. Because saving is investment. There's not enough capital in these societies to raise wages to the point where it's actually profitable to invest. So somehow we have to break through that. So the, the I think in the short term, the money that's been spent by the Gates Foundation so far has had no impact. It's had no measurable impact. I was actually hoping – Well,
0: that's shocking, isn't it?
1: <laughs> well, the, the, but the, the, uh, remember the depressing. same story we agree – happens with microfinance. There's no measurable impact. It doesn't mean it's not making people better off, but there's no aggregate measurable impact. And I, yeah, I accept enough. your criticism fair about that. It, it means that it's hard to measure.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um, it, it really, though, I think given that the commercial aspect of it is being served, albeit at a relatively high rate of interest – um. What this really is about is – seems to me is, is smoothing um, and a form of insurance. It does make life better, but it doesn't get at the real problem of how do we uh, raise the productivity and alternatives that people uh, in many countries have uh, face that are so miserable. So, yeah.
1: A big part of the answer is education for women, and there's just so many cultural obstacles to that.
0: I wonder if there are places where those obstacles have been overcome.
1: Uh, there well, are, obviously, we, we the United States call, being one of them. We call those countries rich countries. Yeah, it's true.
0: You really think that's a barrier?
1: Sure. Yes, I think It's it a barrier. I, it, 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 I think it's an important barrier. I actually don't know if it's cause or effect. Yeah. It that's may be that once countries start to move into a situation where women's – an educated woman's labor has a higher opportunity cost, it's no longer – economically feasible for me to say I don't want women to be educated. You're paying too high a cost. Now, the the economic benefit for an educated woman in a less developed society is not that big. It improves the quality of her life, perhaps, but the opportunity cost in terms of foregone labor is not that high because they have so little physical capital. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So once you once you save, I mean, Adam Smith was just right about this. Once you start to save and accumulate, and you have enough physical capital, that raises the marginal product and therefore the wage of labor, in particular skilled labor, it actually makes it inevitable the the, the education of women and the more efficient use of labor resources.
0: I'm glad we found a intellectual antecedent that we can we can share. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you Northian and you. Uh, but we're we're all Smithians. That, that's yes.
1: good. <laughs> Even you, Chicago goofballs. You, you at least you use Smith for a door a doorstop.
0: <laughs> My guest today has been Mike Munger. Mike, thank you for being part of Econ Talk.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast